right, folks, welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Mile High Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. It is Tuesday night as I'm recording this following the NBA Draft Lottery and the Miami Heat versus Boston Celtics game, one of the Eastern Conference Finals. I'll probably do some breakdowns of those games, uh, both the East and the West, throughout this because I do think that, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, these results, they they should mean something to the Nuggets as a lot of these teams, uh, the Mavericks, the Celtics specifically, are younger teams that the Nuggets are going to have to compete with going forward. Uh, And also, the Warriors are probably not going anywhere next year. So we're still going to see a bunch of these teams and Denver's still going to have a whole bunch of things to figure out. But with that in mind, I, I, I'll, I'll get to that at various future podcasts, don't worry. But the big news of the evening was the NBA draft lottery. And there were obviously stakes going into this. Uh, and there isn't necessarily a top draft pick that has separated themselves so far. I think you've got different guys that could go at the top of the draft. But for the lotto and, and how it sort of panned out, over the course of tonight, I do think that there are some interesting takeaways to the top, and and it should be interesting for the future of the NBA. So let's go through the lotto order. Let's go through that. Let's go through the top five prospects in my mind right now and how this affects Denver. After that, I'm going to share some draft takes, some Nuggets takes in the draft and how Denver will probably be handling some things. And then in the final segment, I want to talk about reading the floor at a high level on both ends, because I think the teams that are in the playoffs right now do that very well, and it's something that the Nuggets have to emulate. But for now, let's look at the lotto order. I'm just going to read out the top 10. Nothing changed below pick seven or so, uh, but I'm going to read out the lotto order and how it panned out. I've got Orlando in the top spot, Oklahoma City at two, Houston three, Sacramento four, Detroit 5, Indiana 6, Portland drops to 7, the Pelicans, they get that pick from the uh, Anthony Davis trade, they get the 8th overall pick, San Antonio Spurs get the ninth pick, and Washington gets the 10th. So not a lot of changes, uh, basically 8 and onward. Uh, you had the Sacramento Kings move up from 7 to 4. You had the OKC Thunder move up, I think, from four to two. But other than that, uh, Detroit was the team that dropped the most, uh, tied with the Rockets. Uh, Detroit dropped from three to five, and Houston dropped from one to three. Uh, Houston didn't deserve the number one pick this year. They uh, they had an opportunity to take Evan Mobley last year. Instead, took Jalen Green. We'll see if that ultimately pans out. Like I think Jalen Green's going to be a good scorer, but kind of like. Devin Booker versus, I don't know, uh, there, there's other capable young athletes like an Anthony Davis or a Joel Embiid or somebody like that. That's what Evan Mobley was in my mind, and and they screwed that up, and Cleveland is going to reap the benefits of that, of course. But for this year, you've got the teams in the top five. I'm going to focus on them mostly. Orlando, OKC, Houston, Sacramento, Detroit. Orlando, they finally get an opportunity to draft in the top three. They didn't get that chance last year. They drafted Jalen Suggs at five. They drafted Franz Wagner at eight. 
They had Jonathan Isaac uh, back in 2017, but that hasn't really worked out for them, obviously, because of his injuries. He looked like a very talented player, not so talented off the court, um, but he does seem like a guy who they can't really count on. Uh, Markel Fultz, we'll see what happens with him. Like I, I just don't know. Cole Anthony, they got at like 15, so it does feel like they get kind of a reprieve here, and they're going to get one of Chet Holmgren, Paolo Bancaro, or Jabari Smith at the top of the draft. And so Orlando, they can finally turn around their team a little bit with a superstar-type prospect, although I'm not sure if any of those guys are really superstar types. We're just going to have to see. OKC, they've spent a lot of time doing their own version of the process ever since Actually, it really only has been two years, but it's just been so aggressive over the course of these past two years. Because remember, they they trade they traded for Chris Paul in the nineteen twenty season that went into the bubble, and Chris Paul was good for that team. He was good for Shea Gilgis Alexander, who uh, was acquired from the Paul George deal, and then they traded Chris Paul to the Phoenix Suns for a package that was meh. Basically, they they decided to go the route of tanking and reconfiguring their team. And so for the last two years, OKC has kind of been not a joke entirely, but because like Denver's lost to them multiple times, Uh, but they don't necessarily strike me as a team that is trying to win games. But now you get a second overall pick. Maybe that changes. Maybe they can finally uh, shed the long-term prospect of a rebuild by adding an elite prospect because they've got all these picks. They might as well put some of them to use here. They've also got the 12th overall pick. I neglected to mention that. So they get two and 12. So we'll see how that goes. And the Rockets, they drafted Jalen Green last year. Can't imagine they're super committed to Kevin Porter Jr. at the point guard position. So they could go with a guy like uh, Jaden Ivey as a as a point guard position for them, but they'll probably go with Paolo Bancaro, Jabari Smith, Chet Holmgren, one of those three to kind of balance out the uh the backcourt position that Jalen Green is going to hopefully fill for them for several years. Sacramento, they move up. They need good things to happen to them and they do get an opportunity to move into the top five. They don't get a top three pick, so they can't necessarily fully make up for the fact that they drafted Marvin Bagley ahead of Luka Doncic, but maybe they get a guy like Shaden Sharp or Jaden Ivey or even Keegan Murray, somebody who they feel could be a dynamic athlete, a dynamic scorer or connector for what they need going forward. I'm not sure whether De'Aaron Fox is going to be long for that team, but it does feel like uh, Davion Mitchell is going to be there for a while. And we'll just have to see what direction they go. It, it does sort of feel like with the Tyrese Halliburton trade, though, that they are kind of spinning their wheels. They did send DeMontis Sabonis to the lottery today to be their lotto representative. Uh, so maybe he's long for them. I'm, I'm not sure. But if if I, I'm just a little bit confused on their direction after the Sabonis trade. And Detroit, they get to add to the Cade Cunningham rebuild Shaden Sharp makes a lot of sense for a guy like that. Get multiple ball handling wings that are big for their position. Uh, Jaden Ivey could also be a point guard next to him, kind of make up for the Killian Hayes mistake back in 2020. 
Uh, or maybe they go Keegan Murray, somebody who's more of a, a power forward, somebody that can switch one through five pretty reasonably and is pretty capable there, but not necessarily sure what role he will fill at the NBA level. Probably more of a Grant Williams type than a, I don't know, a, a Carmelo Anthony type as that position. So the top five prospects in my eyes, and I, I'm look, I'm not an expert on this, but you come to my opinion for NBA potential and and what these guys would look at at the NBA level. I haven't done enough work on Chet, Paolo, and Jabari in order to really determine which of those three I like. But I know for a fact that smart people really like Chet, and he seems like a player that if you know what you're doing as an organization – you can make it work with him because of his skill set, because of his talent. He will have some weaknesses because of his frame, but smart people like him. And I just often try to trust smart people as much as I can. Jabari Smith, he uh, I was reading uh, Kevin O'Connor's Ringer comparisons. He compared him to a two-way Richard Lewis and Michael Porter Jr., uh, kind of with the 6'10 jumper. Um, if he's that level of jump shooter, then that would be fantastic for any team that drafts him. Makes a lot of sense next to a guy like Shea Gilgis-Alexander or Josh Giddy when those guys are talented distributors. If he's an outside shooter, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Paolo Bancaro at three. He's the guy that I have the least feel on because he, he's more of a power player, but he also kind of has... He has some pretty good facilitation. He was playing with good a good spaced floor, uh, but he's not necessarily an impactful defender. Uh, there, there's a long list of Duke forwards, especially small forward, power forward types, uh, where those guys have either worked out great, and it's like a, a Jason Tatum, Brandon Ingram mold, or it's more of a Jabari Parker kind of mold. And not necessarily sure what version you're going to get, but there's a lot of smart people that like Paolo too. So, not necessarily sure which of those to believe. I'll I'll do be I'll be doing more work on this as the draft gets closer. But Shade and Sharp, I, I he's a mystery box because he didn't play at Kentucky this year. He's the number four prospect for me, and he's a very interesting player in my mind. Just I I watched some of the draft. Pro, uh, the pro day work that he had when he was putting on a show for a whole bunch of NBA scouts and NBA executives at the Chicago pro day. And good gosh, he he looks like a certified NBA player, uh, whether that actually translates or not remains to be seen, but six, six big kind of shooting guard type can do a little bit of everything with the ball in his hands, but also can play off ball. At least that's what the smart people say. Uh, that's the kind of player that is always going to be valuable at the NBA level, especially if he can get if he can get off his own shot. Uh, it, Tankathon currently has Detroit selecting him at number five. If they were able to pair him with Cade Cunningham, like Cade can be your your main point guard type, and Shaden Sharp can be your secondary creator. That is your wing rotation locked up forever. And add Sadiq Bey to that list as kind of a 
small ball four that can also rotate in at the three. That's a really, really good duo. And finally, Jaden Ivey. I actually got to saw some of his March Madness games. I saw some of Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith and Palo Bancaro too, but not enough to really feel confident. But Jaden Ivey does strike me as a player who is a, a John Morant type athlete in a lot of different ways. A little bit more powerful as an athlete, just a little bit bigger, of course, and a little bit thicker. And maybe not as springy, maybe not as agile side to side as a guy like Jaw. But he does kind of remind me of him. He does kind of remind me of that mentality where he can get downhill for sure. Not the level of passer that Ja Morant is. So he he's going to need an even more spaced floor in all likelihood than Ja is. But I do think that Jaden Ivey could be a guy that really turns a lot of heads. Uh, just like a lot of these guys can. You you never know. But I, I, I sort of like Shade and Sharp more than him. But Jaden Ivey strikes me as a guy that Makes a lot of sense in today's NBA too. Now, how does this affect Denver? Like, how does this top of the draft affect Denver? What are some of the things, the fallout from the lotto that make a lot of sense? Not a lot. Uh, OKC kind of has an outside chance of turning around their rebuild really quickly. And then they've got a couple of guys and Shea, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander, Josh Giddy, and and a lot of kind of, kind of their their formula, their foundation has actually hurt Denver in a lot of different ways. But if you add some more talented pieces to that, and maybe they make a run sooner than people give them credit for, they're going to have cap space. They're going to have uh, just a lot of different pieces that they can choose from and and trade some picks and make sure that they outfit another team with a, a cadre of selections if they wanted to acquire some uh, malcontent on the free agent market, not the free agent, on the trade market. I'm not sure who that guy is. And often a lot of those guys are point guards and shooting guards, and they've already got Josh Giddy and Shea Gilgis Alexander. So not sure what that's going to mean for them, but they seem like a team that is going to try to pivot at some point. The other ramifications, Portland, Damian Lillard was there as their representative at the lottery. He seems like a guy that is ready to either make some big moves and trade this pick or like had it moved up into the the top three, then maybe they they shoot for a star type with that pick. Uh, not sure who that would be. Not sure who's available, of course. But uh, to me, because they actually moved down to seven from six, they are more likely to trade that pick. They are probably going to try to get Dame some immediate help. They've been rumored to try to get DeAndre Ayton. They've been rumored to try to get Jeremy Grant. We'll see if any of those things can happen or if that's just kind of uh, complete nonsense because it's, it probably is, to be honest. Maybe they're going to want to, but DeAndre Ayton is a restricted free agent. It's like, if the Suns actually want him back, then he'll be back. Um, But yeah, we'll just we'll see what actual moves that they could make because they were Denver's first round opponent just last year. And like they could absolutely be back in the playoff mix. I don't think anybody would question that. Whether there'll be a championship contender remains to be seen. I, I can't imagine they would be with Yusuf Nurkic as their center. If it was DeAndre Ayton as their center, that might change some things. And the Pelicans, they get another top 10 pick. Uh, if they package that pick, and other stuff to get better, and then added Zion Williamson to the group that pushed 
uh, the Suns to six games. That is really interesting. They don't necessarily have a guy to combat Nikola Jokic, but they do have a lot of capable guards, wings, forwards on their team. Herb Jones I've always uh, thought very highly of. Zion Williamson is an incredible talent. Brandon Ingram's made a lot of strides. They added CJ McCollum. You add even more to that, like there's some there's an interesting team in there for sure. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to share some draft takes and, and some takes that I have created from some of the draft profiles that I've done on Denver Stiffs over the course of this week. We'll be right back. and roll. Ryan Blackman here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you can, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, Five Stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, some changes are probably coming pretty soon. Just uh, just want to let everybody know, anybody's, uh, anybody's listening to this podcast, and you're probably wondering, what the hell are you talking about, Ryan? Uh, you'll see. You'll, you'll see. On this segments. Let's talk some draft takes. Uh, Obviously, I've just shared my top five prospects, some of the stuff for the actual teams that are in that mix. But for Denver, Denver's got the 21st overall pick at Denver Stiffs, currently uh, doing a draft profile process. We've done this for the last several years over at Denver Stiffs. And it's one of the things that I really like doing is taking an interest in the NBA draft. And It was more of a thing that we did in 2020 where Denver had – and we've done this in in prior years too, but 2020 when Denver had a first overall pick – or not first overall, a first-round pick and then traded for another one, we had profiled Zeke Naji and RJ Hampton back then and got to use both of those profiles in profiling some – in going about uh, just learning about some of these guys and – It helped people become a little bit more knowledgeable about the draft on our staff, and it helped prepare us for what was to come with some of these young guys. Last year, obviously, we missed on Bones Highland, and I felt pretty bad about that, so I wanted to get that right this year. And so we started, and we've we've started this week. And obviously, today, the day that I'm recording this, Tuesday at 10.23 a.m. is May 17th. The draft is still over a month away. But Denver Stiffs is getting a good head start on all of the content on what is to come. And it's a good way to prepare, in my eyes, for the NBA draft. And it's helped me learn, in the two profiles that I've done, about two athletic forward prospects that I think Nuggets fans might be interested in as the NBA draft gets closer. Uh, Brandon Ewing profiled David Roddy, who's a Colorado State forward who's drawn comparisons to Grant Williams, among other people at the NBA level, uh, and Leonard Miller, who is who I draft or who I worked on yesterday for the profile. Uh, he is a guy who, at 18 years old, played high school basketball in Canada this last year and is currently deciding whether to become a 2022 NBA draftee or go to college or go to the G League. He's among those are are his. Uh, potential answers, and and I'm very interested to see what he does because he's a very interesting talent. 
Uh, and Jabari Walker, who I am profiling for Denver Stiffs on Wednesday, I've just completed my profile on him. I feel pretty comfortable about comf- – good God, can't really speak today. Uh, I feel pretty comfortable about my Jabari Walker take now and that he seems like a guy that Denver could look at. And both Leonard Miller and Jabari Walker are guys that Denver could look at. I don't think that they would draft either of them 21st overall. But with Leonard Miller, you're getting somebody that's young, uh, very raw, not ready to contribute right now, but he has some intriguing talent, intriguing athleticism, and playmaking potential that the Nuggets obviously would be very interested in, that they've they've shown interest in in the past. They've liked to draft their mystery boxes with uh, Jared Vanderbilt was one. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. was another, somebody that was kind of a high-risk, high-reward kind of selection. Bull Bull makes a lot of sense as a mystery prospect. RJ Hampton went to New Zealand to play for the Breakers. Uh, who are some other kind of mystery box? Malik Beasley, he injured his leg during the season for Florida State, and they still drafted him 19th overall because they believed in their scout on him. They believed in his athleticism. Jamal Murray, kind of same thing. They, he was in Canada, kind of like Leonard Miller, but he was in Canada and obviously had a year at Kentucky, but a lot of the stuff before him where he was a point guard in while in Canada, that was lost on a lot of the main draft Twitter and calculus when it came to who Jamal Murray was going to be. Lots of people just thought he was a shooting guard. Turns out he was much more than that. And then Bones Highland, another guy that Denver had a a deep scout on that not necessarily a lot of people knew what they were going to get with him, but the Nuggets did. Leonard Miller's a guy that I'm I'm not sure if the Nuggets have, have deeply scouted Leonard Miller, if they have gone to some of the Canadian events, or if they just watched him at Hoop Summit like they did, like like he did this year, I think it was on April 5th or somewhere around there, where he played pretty well against uh, other guys that were mostly in the 2023 class. But he's thinking about now reclassifying to 2022. So I'm very curious to see what the Nuggets are looking at with a guy like him and what their general plans are for their roster going forward. Are they considering the 21st overall pick as a player that needs to play now? Or could they take a time, draft a guy like Leonard Miller, give him a year, and see what he could become when Denver needs him a little bit more down the line? It's a very good question. Jabari Walker is kind of the same thing. Not quite because he, he's less of a mystery box, of course. I, th- I think that he has a, a tangible ceiling, of course. But he's a guy that I could see with a year of seasoning be a very interesting rotation piece. Probably not going to be an immediate impact guy because he does have some weaknesses and does have some questions on what position is he going to play? Uh, Is his shot good enough for the next level? Uh, Is he a good enough or a great enough athlete to be uh, kind of a defensive stopper, a a player that you just put on a whole bunch of elite talents in the NBA and that can he hold up at the next level if tasked with some of those things? Uh, Jabari Walker, somebody who I would probably draft in the second round. Leonard Miller, same thing. Both of those guys are 
flawed prospects just from the perspective that Leonard Miller didn't really play a lick of defense while he was in high school. Jabari Walker, uh, he was a first option and didn't really have that many go-to moves and go-to sets that the uh, CU Buffaloes really went to with him. So he's a little bit of a – like he's not going to play that role at C- or at, at, for the Nuggets or anything like that because Denver's got their – they've got their ecosystem already figured out with Jokic as the first option, Murray as the second in all likelihood, and maybe Michael Porter fits in somewhere from a second or third option perspective. But Denver needs guys around those guys, not necessarily in place of those guys. So – I was wrong, and I'm pivoting here a little bit. I was wrong about Jaden McDaniels a couple years ago in the 2020 draft when I sort of wrote him off as a an athletic six foot nine forward, somebody who was very uh, enticing from a skill set perspective, but what didn't have a very successful college season, wasn't very helpful at the University of Washington. He had a lot of like off the dribble stuff, first option kind of stuff, but he wasn't going to play that role at the NBA level. And I sort of made the leap that he wouldn't be able to find that role and would probably struggle, kind of like a a former University of Washington player in Marquise Chris, who I had previously liked and then got burned for it. But for every Marquise Chris, there's a Jaden McDaniel, somebody who can fit into an NBA caliber ecosystem and fill a role. And it was just the fact that he he wasn't actually going to be like a perfect NBA shooter, but his defense was something that people took seriously. His length, his athleticism. And some of those things weren't necessarily of the, hey, wow, he needs to be an elite 3 and D shooter in order to be successful. He just had to have a brain on his shoulders uh, and be able to read NBA defenses and make some athletic plays and things like that. And so when it comes to prospects like Leonard Miller and Jabari Walker and guys like that, I think Denver could be willing to take some chances here if they believe in the basketball IQ that those guys are, are playing with. Now, they might not. They might think that those guys aren't ready for the NBA level, in which case they probably won't draft them. They probably won't circle them on their big board. But the Nuggets have really made it a focal point to draft smart people. And so their their athletes, like they need to get more athletic. And oftentimes the smartest people are the ones that aren't as athletic because they kind of have to make up for it. So they make up for it in creative and non-athletic ways. But Denver needs to get more athletic. They need to get stronger, bigger, faster to kind of make up for the fact that Nikola Jokic is a slower traditional center from a defensive standpoint. That Michael Porter Jr. isn't going to be a an elite defender in his career. They're going to need to make up for that. That Jamal Murray's coming off of an ACL tear. He might not be the best defender when he comes back, and who knows if he'll ever get back to that point. It's it's They need to make up for their athleticism. They need to be plus athletes surrounding those guys. Aaron Gordon is a plus athlete, but he isn't actually like a tier one athlete. And I wonder how they would look if they had a couple of tier one guys surrounding Murray, Porter, and Jokic. So I am leaving the door open for a guy like Leonard Miller, leaving it open for Jabari Walker. Leaving it open for players that are forwards that 
aren't necessarily 3D wings, which I think they need, like Tari Eason, Kendall Brown, uh, EJ Liddell, David Roddy, Nikola Jovic. Those guys are more forwards. They're not necessarily wings. But especially a guy like Tari Eason or Kendall Brown, like I can see them taking a chance on a couple of those guys because of how athletic they are, how springy they are, and what they can do uh, from that standpoint, and then try to remake them as basketball players going forward. And you don't necessarily want to do that. You want to have players that understand the game, that know the game. But in order to reach the top levels of NBA competition, I do think that you need top-level athletes in a lot of different cases. So Denver can at least make up for some of their deficiencies by adding some of those guys. Now, do the does this draft kind of have that? Can they really get away with uh, just going for athletes and not necessarily good basketball players? No. So they're going to have to try to balance that out. And part of that is going to be just finding the, the pieces that they need, finding the, the skill sets that they need. And part of that is going to be finding just the athleticism and the IQ. So I'm not sure which guys fully meet that criteria. And a lot of it is going to come down to the board. A lot of it's going to come down to what the Nuggets are hoping for, for it to break their direction. Uh, some of the 3 and D wings, not necessarily forwards, wings that I'm looking at are Benedict Matherin, who's more top 10 right now, Malachi Branham, Ochai Akbaji, Marjan Bochamp, Wendell Moore Jr., and Christian Braun, or Brown, excuse me. Those guys are more wings, guys that are in the 6'5", six, 6'7", six, range, and are versatile enough that they could switch onto guards, versatile enough that they could switch onto forwards, not necessarily centers or anything like that, but you don't necessarily need that because Denver doesn't switch one through five, they switch one through four. So if you're Denver, those are probably the guys that you're looking at. It's not necessarily the Leonard Millers or Jabari Walkers or kind of higher up the board, Kendall Brown, Nikola Jovic, EJ Liddell, David Roddy, Tari Eason. It's not those guys. It's probably in the wing mold. So if you're if you're a Nuggets fan, if you're clamoring for them to fill a need, then you're probably clamoring for them to fill a 3 and D wing mold. And it's tough because if those guys aren't on the board or they just aren't as good as I'm evaluating them to be or need them to be, like there's a chance that, okay, you fill the position. That position makes sense, but the player that you select isn't actually any good. There was a lot of concern with that with the LA Clippers during the Lob City days where they tried to fill the spot next to J.J. Redick uh, above Blake Griffin. They filled it with Reggie Bullock before he was kind of ready to fill that. Uh, they had a couple of other guys that went in and out there. They had a, a uh, North Carolina guy that they drafted, 3 and D type wing, but that player just wasn't good enough and they, they weren't ready enough to really make an impact. So if you're Denver, you don't necessarily want to draft for need at a specific position entirely. You want to be able to have some flexibility, but hopefully you can identify a player that fits that need that is also really good. And I think Marjan Bochamp is probably the guy that they would identify and select. Ochayak Baji makes a lot of sense. Wendell Moore Jr. makes a lot of sense. But if those guys aren't any good, 
then you might pivot into a different direction. So I'm not surprised. Like I'm not surprised that we'll, we'll still get a we'll still get a lot of clarity on this going forward and some ranges on some of these guys. But I feel pretty good about Denver wanting to fill that three and D wing role. That's what they would hope for. Whether they can or not remains to be seen, but it is their goal. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to discuss more about that uh, that high-level floor IQ, what I was talking about earlier, and reading the floor on both ends at a high level. We will be right back. Final segment, pickaxe and roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Let's talk final segment here. I had touched on this previously, I I think in last episode, about kind of what some of these teams that have reached the conference finals, what do they have that the Nuggets need to emulate? What do they have that the Nuggets don't? And some of that was just positional from an athletic 3 and D wing standpoint. Uh, You want guys that can fill a lot of different roles and have some versatility there. And the small ball is definitely an aspect of that, that Denver, they they can emulate when Nikola Jokic is off the floor, but not necessarily when he's on. They have to have special requirements for their offense and defense in that case. But I do want to touch on basketball IQ. I, I've touched on toughness last week and, and mental toughness, but or last podcast, but I do want to touch on reading the floor and what that really means and why some of these teams at the NBA level have been doing that really well and what Denver can learn from there. So the final five teams that were in the playoff picture were the Warriors, the Mavs, the Suns, who I'm still I'm counting them here. They, they were this caliber of team, the Celtics and the Heat. All of those teams, championship caliber teams, they see the floor really well. Offensively, the floor vision is different. Uh, they, they can really read the floor. They can force the opposing defense to do things that they don't want to do. And they put those players in very compromised positions on, on the offensive end. And on the defensive end, they often switch, not necessarily in the Suns case, but those teams often switch really well. They keep the ball in front of them. They help in the gaps. They, they really understand what the opposing team is trying to accomplish. And I think that's the key. When I'm looking at what the Nuggets can improve upon, that is probably the key. So Denver was very limited this last year in what they could do. Uh, not having Jamal Murray, not having Michael Porter, that was definitely a problem from a, a schematic standpoint. And sort of the opposing team really understanding what you could do and, and what that really means to the rest of your team. But when I think about reading the floor, when I, I think about this, I think of three questions. And this is kind of the process that I think the Nuggets should undergo. What does my opponent want me to do? That is the key when you're trying to identify, okay, you're in man, you're in zone, What kind of man defense are they playing? What kind of zone defense are they playing when you're running pick and roll? Are they hedging up high? Are they dropping? Uh, What what does the help look like from the post? What does the help look like from 
uh, when you drive the lane? How do those other players react? Second, what does my opponent want me to do? So the opponent has their goals on the offensive end, on the defensive end. What does my opponent want me to do? Let's think about this from a defensive perspective. So the, the opposing offense, if they are doing – actually, no. Let's think about this from a defensive perspective. Flip it. Flip it. So you are on offense. The opponent is on defense. If they are in, let's say, a 2-3 zone, they are going to try to shrink the floor, and your opponent is probably going to try to get you to settle for threes – or they're going to try to get you to uh, drive the paint, in which case they're going to try to dig pretty hard at the ball and collapse on the ball handler, maybe try to form a trap, uh, do everything that they can to prevent from getting to the baskets. And so they're going to want you to try to exploit that or to try to take what the defense is giving you and then settle for some bad or average shots. And so that is a really important thing when thinking about, okay, how does an opponent or how does a team, how do they game plan for figuring out how to take advantage of that? And that is the last question. Number three, how can I use that to my advantage? So to review, number one, what does my opponent want me to do? Number two, or no, I'm sorry, I butchered it. Number one, what does my opponent want to do? Number two, what does my opponent want me to do? Number three, how can I use that to my advantage? And so when you identify that info, I think the Warriors do this really well. When they run their split cuts and their actions, and sometimes they'll pivot to a pick and roll, but most of the time they're trying to unbalance the floor. They are trying to leverage what Stephen Curry does really well, and that's taking threes. They try to leverage his gravity into creating shots for him, whether it's with back cuts or uh, drives to the rim or anything like that, or they are trying to use that to free up the their rest of their team. And so they do a great job of taking advantage of the skill set of that player, even without that player really uh, making an impact or like like taking the shots or making the pass or anything like that. And so I think the Nuggets can really benefit from learning that and benefit from using that. One of the things, like Nikola Jokic is great at this. He's a great player for answering all three of those questions. What does your opponent want you to do? What does your opponent want me to do? And how do you use that to your advantage? Jokic is great at finding answers. He's great at solving problems. And that was put to use against Draymond Green and how he wasn't necessarily having those answers early in the series, but he slowly but surely really figured it out. And by game five, he was unstoppable to the point that they were running box and one against him. They were really doing everything that they could to just stop him. And so what Denver can do in those situations is they have to be smart enough, they have to leverage it enough in order to make sure that they are getting good shots and they are taking advantage of the attention that Jokic gets because he gets a lot of attention. Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., they would have helped with that, obviously, but no matter what, I think the opposing team, in this case the Warriors, they were going to try to do anything but have Jokic beat them in some of these games. 
And that's what we saw. Denver kind of fell flat in the third and fourth quarter. The supporting cast really did a very poor job in trying to make up for the fact that the opposing team was just loading up on Jokic and asking anybody else to beat them. They couldn't really do that. Jamal Murray and Michael Porter can. But I do think that it's more than that. It's about designing a system that takes advantage of the fact that Jokic is a great, fantastic, high IQ player and having players that can read the court and understand what is going on. Because there were times this year where Let's take the the LA Clippers game, for example, where Nikola Jokic uh, and the Clippers game I'm talking about, I know there are actually many. The Clippers game I'm talking about was the one, I think, December 26th or so. Maybe it was different. Maybe it was like January, but it was the one where Denver gave up like the 25-point lead. And the reason they gave it up was because they could not get the ball to Nikola Jokic and the opposing team was doing anything that they could to have Faku Campazzo shoot but also like Jeff Green and Aaron Gordon and guys like that, they were they were very comfortable letting those guys shoot too. So if you're Denver, you have to find ways to leverage that. You have to find ways to turn a supposed disadvantage into an advantage. And I think the best way that they can do that going forward is using Jamal Murray in a way where he is a screener, where he is a cutter, where he's an off-ball player, not necessarily somebody that pounds the rock all the time. Maybe Nikola Jokic is more off-ball in general. He's screening a little bit more for other guys. And then you have guys like whoever the, the two-guard is, whether it's Barton, whether it's somebody else, they're handling the ball. Or Aaron Gordon is making the pass, making the decisions. And then you have Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. all involved in these actions. And what are you going to do if you're an oppo- if you're a an opponent? Like if you have Jokic and Porter screening for Jamal Murray while he's coming off of a screen, you're going to generate a switch. And if you generate a switch, then you can use that in a way to leverage everything else on that particular offensive possession. There are ways to unbalance the floor that Nikola Jokic is learning that he's continuing to get better at himself that are going to help make the Nuggets a better basketball team on the offensive end. And especially if they have the shooting talent and the versatility to take advantage of that, they're going to be very, very dangerous. But the defensive end is where it really, like you have a lot of questions. I think if you're Denver, Michael Porter, Aaron Gordon, they sometimes fall into the trap of having teams kind of leverage what they do well and or or leverage what they don't do well and just use that against them. Jokic, getting him out into space, he's very uncomfortable out there most of the time. He will sometimes sag off, try to prevent a shot and then gives up the or try to prevent a drive and then gives up a three. Denver has to understand situation, opponents, timing, all of these things so much better going forward than they did. They've got to think the game at a higher level. And when I watch a team like the Mavericks find out a way to just outlast a game seven and and really just take it to, not they didn't outlast a game seven, but they outlasted a series against the Phoenix Suns, who I thought were the best team remaining in the field. They did it because they were so connected on the defensive end 
and they made everything difficult. They knew what the Suns were trying to get to. They knew what the Suns were attempting, and they stopped it. They prevented it. Sometimes you got to just let the the mid-range shot happen, but they gave everything else hell. And that's the reason why they're in the Western Conference Finals. They leveraged everything. And let's face it, it, Luka Doncic, a big part of that. But Jalen Brunson's also a smart player. Spencer Dinwiddie is a smart player. Reggie Bullock, Maxi Kleba, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, guys like that, they've all contributed to that. And so those aren't like elite names. They aren't elite talents, but they understand what they're doing on the defensive end. I think Jason Kidd has really helped them there. And they've made it work. They've they found a way to shut down some of the best teams, especially the best offensive teams in the NBA. So if you're Denver, you don't necessarily have to have elite talent. I mentioned trying to get better athletes. I mentioned trying to get better shooters and defenders and whatnot. But the most important thing you can do is to have a complete and thorough understanding and commitment to the scheme where everybody is on the same page, everybody's on the same wavelength, knowing what their job is supposed to be and being able to execute whatever the plan is, even if it's a faulty plan. Like that's the thing that people don't understand is that even a faulty plan will often get it done. It doesn't have to be crazy. So, I don't know. That's just my two cents. I think Denver has some good players that can read the floor on their team. Jamal Murray is actually really good at this. That's why his two-main game with Jokic is so potent. It's not just because of the talent, although that's obviously the biggest part of it. Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, they've got to be able to read the court at a high level. Gordon was coming along with this, but he still sort of struggled for much of the series. Michael Porter's never been a real read-the-floor kind of guy. Who else on Denver can really add to that? Monte seems to get, sees the game well offensively. Rivers sees the game well defensively. Barton doesn't really. Uh, not really on either end, actually. he's like A lot of that is, is more simple stuff. Jermichael Green sees it defensively. Bones is developing on the offensive end, but can he get there defensively? Zeke kind of in reverse. He's, he's more seeing the game defensively pretty well, not necessarily on the offensive end. Can those guys get to that level? I'm not really sure, but I do think that it is one of the defining factors in becoming a championship contender. You have to be able to read the floor well, or else you're not going to get to the top levels of the NBA anymore. You have to be able to do a whole bunch of different things and be versatile, but more than anything, It's identifying and finding a way to leverage that to your advantage. That's all it is. And that's it. That's it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll brought to you by Mile High Sports, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I will be back with a Friday episode for sure. Talking about, I'm actually not sure what I'm going to talk about. Maybe it's some more draft stuff. Maybe it's some more uh, news that comes out. Maybe it's more... Western and Eastern Conference Finals. You never know. It's the offseason. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support as always. We'll talk to you guys very soon.